This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Margaret Hickey, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. I'm so excited to be here. I was, I'm really excited to chat with you because I wanted to talk to you last year. I think was it Carter's End last year? Carter's End was last year, yes. Yes, and somehow that didn't happen. So I'm so happy to talk to you now. Um, you have a new book called Stone Town. Margaret is an award-winning author and playwright from Northeast Victoria. Her debut novel, Cutter's End and her upcoming novel, Stone Town, which is what we're talking about, are both gripping rural crime dramas. Margaret also has a PhD in creative writing in which she specialised in depictions of Australian landscapes in literature. And boy, do you get that right. Oh, that's good. Well, that's something that's really important to me. Yeah, you really do get that right. I want to firstly talk about the genre. I guess it was Jane Harper that mm. put the genre on the map. Would you say that? Yes, I would say that. I I can sort of trace rural crime and outback crime. You know, it it does go a bit back, even in the early 1900s or late 1800s with Barbara Bainton. She was an early Australian writer who doesn't get much cred, actually, but she wrote um, these really gripping stories of women in outback places, really frightening stories. She wrote an alternative story to um, Henry Lawson's The Drover's Wife. It was called The Chosen Vessel about a woman by herself in a hut while her drover husband's away and this um, lone um, swaggy is stalking her around the house. It's a really chilling story. So I do think, yes, Jane Harper, absolutely she bought into popularity, but it had been there simmering because of white Australians' fear of the land and that unease in the land. It's been there for a long time, I think, in our literature. But Jane, all credit, yeah, she bought it out into the popular, Mm -hmm. out into the open. So talk to me about your trajectory. I mean, was it a genre that you'd been particularly interested in a long time? I mean, how did you get there? So I'm not really a crime person. You know, I don't really read a lot of crime. I'm not, or I hadn't, I do now. I hadn't read a lot of crime. Uh, I had written, I've written for a long time and my first trajectory, I guess, was plays. So I was writing for plays and um, seeing my plays performed and that was kind of intoxicating seeing plays being performed on stage and read in New York and it was really wonderful. Then I started writing short stories and um, I started getting published in literary magazines across the country and I was um, completing my PhD at the same time on depictions of creative writing and depictions of landscape in Australian literature. So it all kind of melded into one, the short stories, which were always, all of my writing has been through a rural lens, always. I'm a rural person. I'm still living in rural country Victoria and it's always been through that lens. And then I was writing, writing these short stories. I had a collection of short stories published which was really wonderful and then I thought one day I'm just going to write something 
for myself where I'm not worried about publication, where I'm not worried about it being a literary, you know, whether it's going to get published in a literary journal. I'm just going to write for myself something that I know, which is rural Victoria and rural rural towns across Australia, rural areas, and I'm going to write a crime. I'm going to have some fun. And so I wrote it completely. I think my, my husband might have known I was writing it, but no one else knew, and that's when I wrote Cutter's End. And it was it was such a joy to write. Mm. I want to go back to um, how I love how you skimmed over this. Uh, you're a playwright, you're writing plays, mm. and they went to New York and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Well, actually, more detail, please. Oh. <laughs> so I started, so there's a really wonderful um, company called Baggage Productions in Melbourne, and they do monologues for women. So I, I, I sent along one of theirs and it got chosen. And I went and watched it being performed at La Mama's as part of the, you know, the final. And as I said, it was intoxicating, you know, to hear people laugh when you've written that, you know, when it actually works. So I started writing more and more plays and they were published and um, and performed in regional Victoria and in, in Brisbane and in Melbourne again at La Mama and often they were performed in little, um, so the first one my friend and I put on, my husband was the lighting person and my sheep farmer friend, he rigged up the sound in this old chaff house in Milloa. And we were so amazed. Everyone came. And by some miracle, a Guardian journalist came and um, wrote up a report of the of the play. And her last line was, um, bloke, because that was the name of it, bloke tells us that is, is a story of why the city theatre goers should sometimes head out of town. And it was really lovely. It made me think people do like rural stories and stories about rural lives and then it just it escalated and it got picked up by a company overseas and they read it in Broadway. I'm not going to pretend that they played it on Broadway. It was a full production, but it was read in Broadway and that was a great thrill. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about that, like, you know, that city people should, what did she say? Should, she said head out of town. Head yeah. out of town because there is a fascination we have with mm. the country, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I think... We all have it. Um, and I'm I, I'm very, very urban, very mm-hmm. urban. I was born in a city glebe. I haven't yeah. really left, you know, I've gone as far as Petersham in terms of uh, where I live. So <laughs> oh, that's wow. it's, How it's, wonderful, though. It's about 7Ks. However, I am drawn, there is, you know, that, that kind of image that urban people have of the country, the peacefulness, the quietness, mm. it's all of that. And there's, you know, immersing yourself in, in your environment and looking mm. at the trees. But there is also an eeriness about it, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you're right, you're right though, Cheryl. You know, 3,000 years ago, Theocritus wrote The Idols, the, a, a book called The Idols, about how urban people long to be in the country. You know, so this is nothing new. We have this. But what is interesting, Cheryl, I think, is in Australia, and I'm talking about white Australians here and um, people who are not um, First Nations people, have this kind of unease in the landscape, mm. uh, uh, this unease, this uh, sort of uncanny uh, where literally, you know, in, in no one can hear you scream. And we hear this, we, we read about this in literature, white literature, from very first settlement, from the first settlement when they were on Sydney heads, they're terrified of the bush. 
And Henry Lawson, while everyone loves Henry Lawson, and he is an, I love Henry Lawson. However, he doesn't write about the bush in very nice terms. He writes about it as it's mundane, it's boring, it's disparaging, it's better when the moonlight's on it, when you can't see it. It's all these sorts of things, but he loved, he did love the people. And then we've got this sort of gothic feeling about the outback too, that people, and I guess it stems from, do we belong here? Are we meant to be here, perhaps? Mm. So, is that what is that what you think it is? Well, perhaps not now. I mean, there's the, you know, humans like to be around people, so uh, like to be around lots of people and like to congregate together and to be in familiar places. So when we're put in outback places or in play, rural places, um, it can be really frightening. And, you know, this stems from the whole early, in early white literature, there's this whole trope of children going missing in the bush. Mm. There's paintings, Frederick McCubbin, there's stories mm. written about it, all this, and it was this great fear, children growing, getting lost in the bush. And it was sort of like the bush is out to get us. You know, C.J. Dennis writes about the marauding fingers of the bush out to get little children. And, you know, I would argue that we still have this great fear of children, of our little children going lost in the bush. It's something that's kind of unique to Australia, actually. I think it is. Um, A couple of years ago, um, I've got this beautiful niece who's got two beautiful boys and we were out on a property it wasn't even that remote it was in the Hunter Valley anyway her husband their father pitched a tent and he's the camper fishing kind of guy and it was about 10 o'clock and she sent his name's Connor she gave him a torch and she it was pouring with rain and she said off you go to bed and he walked off that property Onto and the tent was pitched just a couple of hundred meters away from the house, and he unzipped that tent, walked in, zipped it up, and went to bed. And I totally freaked. Yes, I totally freaked. Yeah. Now, what was I frightened of? I don't know, but I was frightened of sending that boy alone in the darkness. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Sure. So I wish I had an inter- interviewed you for my PhD. This whole, I think it's the academic Peter Reid who writes about this. You're right. We are really terrified of the bush, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of almost that there's something malignant about, uh, about mm-hmm. you know, these places. When mm-hmm. in actual fact, you know, your, your nephew was probably very safe. Oh, he was very safe, very happy to do it. He didn't yes. think twice about it. I think he might have even been four or five. I mean, he was <laughs> and he just walked out there and did it. But for me, it was a total freak out moment. So yes, we do have that. So you were bought up. You you're living it. It's authentic. Did you have those moments like growing up? Not so much growing up. So I can. So when I lived in the Mallee, we're in Mouse Plague, and um, I lived in the Otways when, when in Dean's Marsh, when Ash Wednesday, um, our school, we had to huddle in the hall, all that sort of stuff. And, but never did I think of the bush as something menacing. So where C.J. Dennis, no, Colin Teeley in February Dragon writes about um, bushfires as like as dragons and monsters, I didn't think of it like that. I, I really 
genuinely loved growing up where I did. And I, and I, I mean, I still do. I'm back now in Northeast Victoria, um, where I was when I was very little. And it's, you know, right now I'm looking at a, a sea of trees. You know, it's, I don't feel frightened by it. No. Tell me about your upbringing in the bush. So I was born in England, actually, but two Australian parents who were backpacking and were really upset. They were absolutely spewing, I think, when they found out I was pregnant because it totally ruined their plans. So they came back when I was um, two months old and moved back to where my grandparents were on a farm outside Port Ferry, um, Toolong in Western, in Western Victoria. I have been to Port Ferry. That is beautiful oh gorgeous it's so beautiful little fit it's got that fishing village feel to it hasn't it oh Deva, i just couldn't believe it when i got there i thought why didn't i know about this before oh anyway, yeah it's yeah. beautiful some of my uncles are fishermen still like still mm. work on the trawlers and then farmers but yeah so that's where we were and then we moved up to my dad was the headmaster of little bush schools usually where he was the only teacher or two teachers so in those days, I think teachers got moved around a lot. So then we moved up to northeast Victoria, right, right up in, in the mountains to a place called Wolwa and the Upper Murray, which was absolutely idyllic, apart from the tiger snakes that were there all the time. But we were right on the river. It was just beautiful. And then we moved oh, to the peninsula for only a short time and then up to Patchewalik in the Mallee, um, which is this little town, right? We got there when the mouse plague started. Oh, my. Do you remember the like Cheryl? No. Well, I, it wasn't happening in Petersham, I don't think. Oh, well, Petersham. <laughs> well, I wish I was in Petersham because we <laughs> with buckets of water. Oh. Under, I used to put buckets of water, like everyone in the town, under every bed leg because in the morning we would find <gasps> sometimes 50 mice in the buckets. No, I could not sleep. I could not sleep. Well, and, and the woman, and this is true, the woman across the road from us, Janet, Janet's sister, had a glass eye. And the mice in the night nibbled the glass eye. Oh, no. Oh, God. So See? that was all yes. horrible yeah. stuff. Anyway, so that was the mouse hike. And then mm. we moved to Dean's Marsh, to the Otways, and mm. that was really, that was beautiful at the back of lawn a little time. Anyway, we kept moving on. Because of him being a principal. Yeah. Dad, yeah. Principal. And I think eventually um, when we were near Colac, Dad must have thought, no, Margaret needs, I was the eldest of four, Margaret needs an education. So then we moved to Bendigo when I was in year 10 I think and I finished off my schooling in Bendigo and then went to uni in Monash and then headed off overseas for seven years and came back and lived in the country straight away again. I want to go back to settling in year 10. How mm, was that? Well at the start it was a girls school and I was kind of in shell shock. It it really was culture Mm. shock because I'd gone from a place where I was playing in the creek and looking for yabbies and hiding fishing rope across the across the line. So trick the farmers into thinking there was something on the end of the line, that sort of and then suddenly I was at this place where there was all these gorgeous girls and they were singing Madonna and they all had fingers lace gloves and they were all going to blue light discos and kissing boys. And I was <laughs> out of my depth. Yeah. I was like, oh, do you want to go and play by the creek, you know, dig tunnels by the creek? And they're saying, oh, we're going to a blue light disco and um, so-and-so really likes you. And, oh, it was yeah. oh, terrifying. Yeah, I can imagine the, the cultural shift from that to that. I mean, and even if you're going to a school, entering a cohort in year 10 is difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult, but I did grow to love it. And then in the year later than that, we turned co-ed and that was another shelter, shelter oh, yeah. shock as well. 
Um, but I didn't mind that so much. It was just the initial, I, I found it so big and mm. so many kids, and I was so, uh, they, they talked about things I'd never heard of and, and I sort of really admired them and I really looked up to them. I wanted to be them. <laughs> I think eventually I got along okay. I, I did. Oh, that's up. good. That yeah. was a good experience. Now, talk to me about your time overseas. Where were you? So, when I first went overseas, I was in Japan. Love Japan. Yeah, I love Japan too. And my friend Muzz, he had a job. He he was studying Japanese, and he got a few of us jobs there. But we had to pretend that we could ski and that we we could speak Japanese. Right. So <laughs> they were two big obstacles because I could do neither. Uh, but eventually, and we were stuck in this little small Fukuiken, which is like the armpit of Japan, kind of near um, Korea, I suppose. On the and, and I was stuck in this little room all day with with old Japanese men called Oji-sans. I, I loved it. I worked for yeah. three months and then consequent, and we were earning such amazing money in the early 90s there. So what I would do is I would earn all the money and then my friends who were working in London, I would then pay them for the rest of the year. We would all go travelling and then they would pay me back over the course of the year. Sometimes I think now, did they even pay me back? And I want to ring them and say, hey, Kate. Do you owe me money? I'm an author. I'm an author. I need money. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think we wrote it down, but there was an incredible amount of trust. And you know what it was like. Of course, I think they paid me back, but um, there probably could have been a better. None of us studied accounting. In hindsight, possibly some of us should have. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It reminds me of a story, a similar kind of story, when I was probably about that age, but we were still in Sydney and there's five of us and we're still friends. And somebody, one of them, her father died and she inherited money, not a large amount of money, but money, and she loaned one of us $5,000, which was a large amount of money. But that $5,000 kept going around because everybody needed it until it eventually got back to her. I don't know if she ever earned interest on it. We did give it back but I think after five of us used yeah. it that the, the, the trust and the love that we and I'm still friends with all of those people yes. as well it's and wonderful. I have no doubt that if something did go terribly wrong that they would all you know but yeah but um I do love that about about us in those early days where did you go after Japan because what I want to where I'm getting at is I've noticed with writers this might be your experience or not A lot of the writers that I know that write landscape as a character have lived overseas and come back to Australia. 
Now that's uh, that's a little theory that I have, and also, like say, well, say for instance, Peter Carey, right? Mm. He's been living, well, over twenty years, thirty mm. years in New York, but he only ever writes. I think he's written one book based in the US, but all of them have been written yeah. in Australia and about Australians. So, I feel that sometimes the yearning and the creativity in the story comes from missing it. Yes, I agree. Well, it, also in literature, there's a whole thing of the escape and the return. So we yes. escape, we escape, but then we always have this longing to return. A lot of us do, many of us don't. But I agree, there is that yearning to escape, to a spread, to spread your wings, to experience other things, and a lot of them didn't return, did they? No, I, no, I was always intent on returning, albeit after quite a long time. So after the UK, I went to the Middle East, so and I oh, ended wow. up staying there for nearly three years. We were in Egypt for quite a long time and then Jordan and Syria and then Turkey and then Greece and then back to Israel where we worked in the West Bank at the start in the Palestinian side of Jerusalem, and that was terrific. It really was, but it was hard, hard work. What were you doing? So I was working in a restaurant as a cafe, in a cafe. I can't remember what it was called, this restaurant, but we had to dress up like Romans. So we wore, um, <laughs> we wore wreaths and, and veils and we had to fan the customers. Oh, God. <laughs> really? And feed them grapes. My gosh, what was I thinking? And every night we'd go out to um, to nightclubs and pubs and things. And then during the day we'd sort of work and it was so much fun. It was so wonderful. But where we were living was pretty dire. It felt unsafe at times. And to be a young woman in that circumstance was really difficult at times, Mm. really horrible with some of the attitudes. Mm. Um, We then moved house and we moved, which was really interesting, into an Orthodox Jewish area, into into a little house up near the Ben Yehuda markets. And uh, we had lots of friends with us, lots of Australian friends came to live with us then. And that was, again, that was great time. And then I got a job nannying and it was really, really wonderful. I I loved those children so much. There was four children. I still keep in contact with them. And it it was a wonderful time. But on weekends, then on weekends, we were able to do things and we'd go, we'd travel all around Israel and just, you know, the Golan Heights or the Negev, um, there's something really compelling about Mm. that landscape which is infused, I guess, with all the mythology that we've grown up with, all those biblical references. I grew up in a very Catholic family, so I guess all that history um, combined together with this compelling landscape and what was going on. We were there at quite a good time. We were there when the peace accord was signed, when Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat signed the peace accord, Shalam Al-Akam, and the whole nation was laughing at his accent. But at the same time, it was so joyous. Mm. And we were all dancing at Damascus Gate. It was really wonderful. I left, I think it was two or three years later, when Rabin was shot and I was in Tel Aviv and Rabin was shot up the, just up the road. There'd been suicide bombings on buses and I thought I've got to leave. So we left and then um, I went to South America for five months. Wow. Um, okay, so I want to talk about you getting back and thinking about story. So I'd always liked writing. I was always writing stories overseas Um, And in the long periods of time when I was hitchhiking with my cousin during university, 
I'd tell her stories on the side of the road on the Stuart Highway, that highway that cuts the nation in two. And that's kind of where Cutter's End, my memories from those days of Cutter's End came about. Some of those really scary things in Cutter's End were actually, nothing ever terrible happened to me, but certainly things happened that perhaps you could you could go to the police about. But, not, but I was never attacked, I want to make that clear. But certainly those experiences that I was having as I was travelling, as I was hitchhiking, as I was doing all those things in rural places, I was writing about them all the time, in South mm. America, in the Middle East, all the time writing. Oh, and mm. I always wrote a diary every day. So I just want to know then, when is it that you think that the landscape became a character for you? Had you thought about that or was that just incidental in your writing? That is such a great question. I think it was always there, always, always there. I remember writing a poem to my grandmother, my nana, when I was living in Patchewolik when I was about in grade three, and it was all about the landscape. She later sent it back to me. And she said, why do you love it so much? And I said, because it's so big and we can't ever know what's out there. And, I mean, that's nothing very philosophical about that, but it, that still rings true in all my writing. I, yeah. I, and for you too, perhaps, Cheryl, when you go out, when you say yeah. you go out of your enclave of where you live and when you go even to the Hunter Valley, there's something there that we love. There um, is. There's something very mesmerising about it, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. And it must even hark back to um, the pre-industrial age, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I live next door to a park. You know, I often sit on a park bench and just, you know, look up. And also, because how often do you look up? You know, people forget that there's sky. People forget that there's trees. But anyway, back to you, Stonetown. Tell us a little bit about Stonetown and tell me, how difficult was it to write a second book after the success of a first? So Stone Town is, um, it's a standalone novel, but it, ha- it continues on with the main character, Marguerite, and he's back in his hometown of Buralama in South Australia. And he's grieving because he's, his mother has died. And so the book, it kind of deals with a bit of, uh, you know, he's an old, he's in his 50s. And the book is, it's kind of about uh, how we deal with grief when our parents die, when we're middle-aged ourselves. And sometimes people say things like, how old was she? 88. Oh, well, she. But the grief is still there. Oh, gosh. So, I mean, uh, Margaret, I'm still going through it. And my uh, mother died in April. Yeah. Oh, Cheryl, yeah. I'm so I'm oh. so, so sorry for you. Thank you. I hear you. So talk to me about that. So I, I wanted to put that, and I still have both of my parents who are fitting mm. well. My mother-in-law died this year too, and I, I see it in my husband, um, and I said, Tim, what does it feel like? Because we love Jude, and he said, it feels like a chunk of you is gone. Mm. Oh, Mm. And then, and now I'm going to the funerals of my friends, of my close friends, their parents, and I just went to another one on Thursday. So I wanted to put that in, something about that. So it's a bit about that. But then, of course, there's the crime. So there's also in crime novels, there's always the protagonist's, you know, private agony, and that's Mark's. Um, but then the crime is um, a body is found in the Stonetown bush, And at the same time, a body is found of a real estate agent. There's an agonising scream, which may or may not be um, a bird, which I I don't know if if you've ever heard the barking owl, Cheryl. 
but it is truly terrifying. Uh, the first time I heard it, I thought a woman was being scalped in the in Whoa. the front yard. Terrifying. Yeah. Yes. So that so the book plays on a couple of tensions. It's Mark's private grief. It's this tension between uh, the rural and the metro with the land, where land has become so valuable now, hence the real estate agent's death. And also it's about the power of women in small country towns. Who wields the power in these towns? And for me growing up and still in the town I live in now, it's often the women, the older women, the grandmothers, the older women, these magnificent, magnificent humans who hold whole communities together. Wow. Okay. How challenging did you find it to write? There's something about the magic of writing your first novel because it really is you're writing for you. There's not an expectation, is there, because yeah. it's a personal experience, yes. right, until the reader gets it. But the second book, different story entirely, right? Yeah, I found it more difficult to write. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably because, as you said, you know, the first one, you're so free, you don't care. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's so right. This may or may not get published, I don't care. So then when Cutters End, um, it kept selling and it was it was doing People loved that. it. Our I, readers I loved it. I, I was really shocked. And then I got a contract to write two more books. So then, and I wrote Stonetown, the first draft at least, anyway, quite quickly, and I really tried, Cheryl, to, and, I, and I'm still doing it um, with the third one, to write the same way that I did with Cutters In, and that is to kind of free myself and think, if people don't like it, it's fine. It's fine, you know, if they buy it, maybe give it to someone else or give it to a library or put it in the op shop, whatever, I don't care. But I'm just going to try and write my way, which is really where I don't plan, where it's very organic, that sort of thing. And I did manage to do that, Cheryl, with this one, but I must admit I, f- I found it more difficult. Yeah. Um, I had voices in my head saying, um, oh, some people, some you know, people have said there's not much happens in, in Carter's End. Maybe you should make more things happen or um, that kind of thing. For the first time I had kind of internal critics in my mm-hmm. head. However, I, I'm so fortunate, though, in that my the editors are so wonderful and they were really reassuring. So I got the first draft in really quickly and then I reworked it much more so than with Carter's End and, um yeah, and I'm I'm really happy with it. You should be happy with it, Margaret. We're out of time. Margaret Hickey, I hope you get well soon and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. 
everywhere. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.